This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for another edition of Steve Goldberg's Daydreams. You heard that right. We're going to hear a dude's daydreams. And not just any dude, one of our favorite dudes. Steve is the former chairman of the sociology department at City College, is the foremost expert on patriarchy, and a guy who daydreams a lot. And now we bring you Steve and his latest daydream, and before it, Steve reads to us his mandatory disclaimer. These are all real daydreams that I have had over the past seven decades. They are not written in the sense that one paces the floor at five in the morning trying to write a daydream about X, Y, or Z. These daydreams all simply arrived fully formed, poppied into my head unexpectedly. That's the wonderful thing about daydreams. They require no talent at all. There is a real television program called Shark Tank. The program consists of five real-life billionaires and individuals who bring their inventions for the billionaires to invest in or not, or to occasionally ridicule as hopelessly unlikely to make money. The inventor says what he or she is asking for, say $100,000, in exchange for the bidding billionaires getting 20% of the equity, that is, a fifth ownership of the invention. The billionaire makes the offer or refuses to do so. I am in the program with my invention of a dramatically new kind of prosthetic limb. Well behind me is an obviously legless soldier in a wheelchair. My task now is to persuade a billionaire that my invention is likely to make money, the only thing he or she seems to care about. I make my case explaining the financial virtues of my uh, invention, though it is obvious to both the billionaires and to me that any potential profit fails to approach what is necessary for a billionaire's interest. This is the easy part. I then must face brutal questioning from a nasty billionaire called, as a joke, Mr. Wonderful, a man who has always asserted that he cares about absolutely nothing except money. Without much hope, I explained to Mr. Wonderful that, while the money might be small compared to uh, his usual expectation, it will come with a surprise that will make him happy uh, that he accepted the deal. Mr. Wonderful sneers. At this point, the legless wheelchair-bound soldier, who had been moved off stage without anyone noticing, walks back on stage. Mr. Wonderful, looking a bit sheepish, says, Okay, I'm in. One million dollars. No equity. And that's a great story. And we are now very fortunate to be joined by Steve Goldberg himself and for the first time on the show, his bride, Joan. And thanks, both of you, for joining us. Good to be here. You bet. Thank you. you. Joan, before, before we start with Steve, what's it like living with Steve? Someone who is as brilliant and who daydreams as much? Talk about life with Steve. Oh, my goodness. Well, life with Steve is um, an endless pageant of surprises. You wake up every day, you have a list of things that you think you're going to do that day, and then all of a sudden, Steve 
interferes with some big idea or some small idea. But it's um, it's a lot of fun, and the imagination couldn't begin to uh, to think it up by itself. That's fun. How long have you been married to Steve, Joan? How long how long has this love affair uh, gone on? Oh. Well, we've been together for thirty three years. Oh my goodness, that's terrific! And just getting started, right? Just getting started. <laughs> <laughs> just getting started. Let's talk about your mutual passion, uh, Steve. To you first. Uh, shark Tank. I, I I wouldn't have picked you for a Shark Tank guy, but then you surprise us all the time, Steve. Uh, oh, well, we we literally may have seen them all. There have been, I believe, 169, and I tried to figure out recently um, from because they list them all on online. We've seen at least 165, or many of them, a number of times. We really find them fascinating. But what surprised me about, about my daydreams, and particularly with reference to this uh, store, tanks, uh, store Tank daydream, I can't imagine that anyone would think of the Store Tank daydream as at all funny. But while I wasn't certain that anyone would care in the slightest about my previous daydreams, people seemed to have liked them quite a bit. But everyone who enjoyed the previous daydreams described them as funny. Funny. It never for a moment occurred to me that any, there was anything whatever funny about the daydreams. To be a bit grandiose, I thought of the daydreams as sort of little O. Henry types of stories about someone in trouble and an ending that was surprising and optimistic. That was the daydream's function, and funny had nothing to do with it. Well, you know, I but think if people uh, find them funny, then fine. Well, it's fine with me. It is fine, and let me tell you, a lot of people work very hard to do funny, and they can't get to it. And I think very often in life, funny is that which happens to us that other people think is funny, Steve. And I think this is why it's so hard to find great comedy writing. It's uh, it's a difficult thing to wrap your hands around, and you weren't trying to wrap your hands around it. It's just the effect it's produced. I know it's been a delight to us, and it doesn't mean that all the things you were saying about what your intentions were when you were, or not intentions, because you can't intentionally have a daydream, but what you thought would be the effect of sharing these daydreams, well, I think that that's happened too. But in addition, I think people have found it amusing, the story is amusing. When we come back, we're going to talk to both of you, Steve and Joan, about your favorite Shark Tank episodes. We'll have some clips, we'll talk about ours, and this this love affair with this, this show about a bunch of billionaires trying to get a piece of a company of somebody who's wanting to live the American dream themselves. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. For the two segments here, Steve and Joan Goldberg. Steve, of course, the man who gives us those great daydreams. More after these messages.
Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we're talking to Steve and Joan Goldberg, and we're talking about Shark Tank, because, well, one of our favorite persons and his bride love a show we love, and I think actually America has come to love, and who would have ever thought this would be the number one show on Fridays in America, and yet it is. It's captivating, and let's talk about the sharks themselves. Joan, who's your favorite shark and why? Well, I I like Laurie Grenier because I think Laurie is essentially a kind person as well, as well as a very knowledgeable person. And she starts out her critiques exactly as a professional critic would. She um, finds the thing that's positive about the shark's invention, no matter how ridiculous it is. Um, she absolutely respects the shark, and it's very clear in, in her interactions with them. Um, and then she ends up by telling them the truth, and they can accept it. Yep, it's true. And she, she's very kind, even as she rejects the uh, pitchers and the suitors of the money. And I think that's exactly right. Uh, Steve, who's your favorite? I think Damon is my favorite because he has the the greatest variety in his responses. The others, while they're all interesting, you sort of know where they're coming from from the beginning. With Damon, you really don't know. He has a a, a range of responses, and that's that's what I like about him. And he's also sort of hip. I just like him a lot. Yeah, he's very likable, and you're right. You don't know where he's going to come down. You know what Mr. Wonderful is going to do almost sure. always. He's going to ridicule the folks to get the price down, and then if he does come in with an offer, he wants a royalty agreement in which he That's gets right. paid. It's on, always annoying. Always <laughs> annoying. And by the way, I don't know that this show could, though he might not be a favorite, I think he's the indispensable shark because he's the guy that everyone loves to hate. Or oh, that, I think so. So that, I think that's. I don't think he's anybody's favorite. Now let's get to uh, favorite episodes. Joan, uh, let's talk to you first. One of your favorite episodes. Share with us. Well, my absolute favorite Shark Tank episode came from the very first show, and um, a guy walks on named Darren Darren Johnson. He looks just like an ordinary guy. He's seeking a million dollars in return for fifteen percent equity for product development in his company, the Ionic Ear. You know how frustrating it can be to use typical Bluetooth devices, he says. They slip around, they fall out eventually, you lose them. But he has a solution, the Ionic Ear, an implantable device that improves the process. What are you implanting the Bluetooth into, asked Shark Damon John. Your phone? Some other device? Nope. To make it work, Darren explains, you have it implanted in your neck just below your ear. I remember. Be at the idea of brain surgery, Damon drops out. <laughs> With that, yeah, that, I, I think I dropped out too. Let's take a listen to the clip of the brain implant uh, story. What we have developed is an implantable Bluetooth technology. If I could direct your attention to the first slide, here is the surgery locations. This is just underneath the earlobe. <laughs> the surgery location? This is, this is surgery. You would be under anesthesia. Oh, my God. <laughs> you guys are so close-minded. Please let him finish. Okay. Thank okay. you. Thank you. At the base of the device is a battery. Within its center are Bluetooth electronics, and at its tip, a microphone, a speaker, and an AC charging port. Stop the right there. Back to surgery 101. Okay. Sure. Darren, we're gonna we're gonna operate on people. Yes, we are. We're gonna stick something in near their brain. No, we no, may no, no, not no. puncture their. Ear. You know what? I I can sum up where I stand on this already. It's pretty disturbing. 
and it freaks me out, I'm already out. <laughs> I love that pitch. And they were, you know, you have to both admit, what was fun watching there is how astonished the guys who were pitching were that someone would think this was a bad idea or an uninvestable idea. Yeah. <laughs> and the inventor was absolutely incredulous. He couldn't understand why the shark tanks were reacting the way they did. Right. right. And then they actually do the post-interview where almost every time they get rejected, they're like, well, we'll show those sharks because it just it almost reminds me of Ralph Cramden and the Honeymooners. Every idea and pitch he ever had was the greatest idea, and most of yeah, them were pretty, right. pretty darn silly. Steve, another favorite of yours. Oh, I think my favorite was the Urination Golf Club. <laughs> this was perhaps the dopiest of all Shark Tank pitches, though, uh, of course, it had lots of competition. Um, this is, just as it sounds, a golf club into which one urinates. No need to go behind a tree, though, of course, it's unlikely you could uh, hide what you were doing from the other golfers um, when you were availing yourself of the virtues of the club. Uh, sharks thought this was as ridiculous as it seemed, and no one bit. And let's take a listen to the Urination Golf Club clip right now. I'm a board-certified urologist, and I have a successful practice in South Florida. Many of my male patients have two things in common. Number one, well, they urinate a lot. And number two, they love to play golf. And if you've been on a golf course, I won't have to convince you that the trees are sparse and the bathrooms are almost non-existent. That's why my patients encourage me to design and produce the Euro Club. Uh-oh. I can't wait. I see where this is going. This is a trademark patent pending product that functions as a self-contained receptacle. Can you imagine being in the patent office, Steve, and seeing this product come to your come across your desk? Yeah. Oh, it's delight. One more, Steve, from you, and then we'll, uh, we'll close up the segment. But one more favorite. Okay, I like the drawing of cats. Um, there was a guy who made drawings of cats. He did them all himself, so it wouldn't seem that this was really easy to uh, turn into a huge business. Um, and it, as I say, it struck me as the most uninvest- uninvestable of pitches, um, pretty much like the Urination Golf Club. Um, the guy did all the drawings himself. No chance of success, it seemed to me. But I was wrong. The sharks loved it, and it later became profitable. There is an economy for stupid, and I am overflowing with it. Now, with their universal appeal, my cat drawings are poised to be the next pet rock. I charge people $9.95 for my cat drawings. Nine thirty-two of that is, is profit. 932 is profit. By the way, I have to, if we can give the guys who created this show, and it's Mark Barnett, basically, one of the great TV producers, you know, people are learning a lot, Steve and Joan, about mm-hmm. how enterprise works. I mean, I have young people at the college, I, we broadcast here at Ole Miss, who now have Shark Tank parties. They now understand that the billionaire wasn't born a billionaire. Not one of the people on that stage grew up with any money. None of them. Right. So they're all self-made, and so now we dispel the idea that you come to this country and you're either rich or poor, and that's that, that we live and are born in static classes. But moreover, now what the people want, they don't just want the money of the shark for partial ownership. They're looking for something more. They're looking for the wisdom of the shark. That is their knowledge. one of the things that's really great that the, the sharks, every one of them points out that they've, they've gone through failure in their lives, and they weren't overnight successes. They had lots of failures, many of them, before they really hit it. 
Yep, it's so true. And I love it when periodically someone will be having their product move along, but they're not really ready yet. And the sharks will go, go back and work harder or go back and get more sales or you're okay without our money. You don't need our money. There are many times where the pitch is so good, the profit's so good, the sharks are like, what do you need us for? Just keep going. You can do this by yourself. So I, I find that, you know, in, in the end, it's a tremendous defense of capitalism, this show. Any thoughts on that? Well, to Shark Tank's credit, a good number of the people who come on Shark Tank didn't have the, an idea till they saw a Shark Tank. Yep. And then they said, maybe there's something I can come up with. And they did, and they got on Shark Tank, and in some cases was successful. It's quite impressive. It really is. And, Joan, any final thoughts for everybody on, on, on Shark Tank as, as a lover and a listener? Um, I think that you have to be aware that it becomes addictive, that um, as soon as you cross in front of that TV set, especially if you have somebody who DVRs for it, you can look at Shark Tank any time of the day or night, and it's a great procrastinator. Oh, it really is. And I, I ever think I know a reason why. Each one of them is a story. Each one has human characters. You, I mean, right. you don't know who's right. coming through next. It could be a crazy pitch. It could be fun. It's like the gong show, almost. You never know what's coming on next. But you, 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 the characters involved, and I think they've done a great job on the shark side of having very different kinds of sharks that appeal yeah. to very different types of people. Well, you know, I, I appreciate both of you. We should come on again every few months, pick some of your other favorite Shark Tank episodes. We love this show. America loves this show. And America loves a dream fulfilled. And my goodness, you're right. People are now watching the show and thinking, heck, I got an idea. Let me pitch it to the Sharks. This is Lee Habib. We've been talking to Steve and Joan Goldberg. And thanks so much, both of you, for joining us. And we look forward to having you on next time to talk about Shark Tank. Thank you very much. And thank you both. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories for the hour. Stevie Ray Vaughan, his life, his music, and we're going to have him talk to you about his own guitar playing. Here he is talking about how he doesn't normally have a rhythm guitar underneath his lead solos, and how sometimes even some of his favorite guitar licks hit the cutting room floor. Do you have rhythm guitar behind most of your solos on the record, or no? You don't? No. Yeah. I'll scratch and sniff. Mm-hmm. That's the only ones. What I ended up playing for the solo was this, was this based off of this uh, 
Of anyway, and that was the way this song was. It was either going to be Scratch and Sniff or Houses Rocking was going to start. Right. Okay. Which tune do you end up using that on? Well, I used the uh, on Scratch and Sniff. I used I used parts of it. Okay, there was these two songs. I was wanting to use, and then go to the. thought it would fit in with a rock and roll song you know <laughs> right you know and it just ended up where i never we never could decide which one to put it in <laughs> so it didn't make it on either one <laughs> so when we were doing, I was doing this solo for scratch and sniff i tried to play this other stuff and i hated it hated what I was playing right and I went hmm let me go try this one more time yeah. so I just turned on all the gadgets I could find <laughs> including a wah-wah yeah you know that's so when the solo starts with the wah-wah yeah. right yeah and started playing that you know and so there you have it Vaughn talking about what he did in the studio and how he did it Vaughn is asked in this same interview about the blues and what made him like it so much it's a great answer what is it about the blues? I mean, you didn't like stop playing blues. At one point, you go, oh, well, I'm going to play, uh, you know, I'm going to learn how to play heavy metal. Or, I mean, you play blues because you love the blues. And what is it about the blues to you that makes it just feel so good to play and get better or whatever? It just sounded more like the real thing than something else did. It's not like I automatically went, well, uh, this is cooler than this. Right. You know, or uh, this is more emotion. You know? <laughs> When I heard it, it just killed me, mm-hmm. you know, it slayed me. Right. There was just not a question. Hearing it different ways, you know, like from all these different ways I've been talking about, English blues boom to, to like authorized recordings and, you know, bootleg stuff, you know, of everybody you can dream of. Just listening and listening and listening, and the more I heard, the better I liked what I heard. And how has the blues changed for you? Uh... Well, uh, in the fairly recent years, in some ways I felt like I've gotten more in touch with it but it's usually when I go and see somebody when I go when I go see somebody that's that's just used to playing a small club it's not used to being running around in a fancy tour bus and mm-hmm. playing in arenas there's a difference there on one side of the coin it may look like okay well the guy sounds that way so we can't sell him on the other side of the coin is uh I've been sold so I can't sound like that <laughs> you know and uh every time I get to hear somebody sound real once again, I get the chance to come home. It makes me want to play that way, right. even that much more, and find a way where I can play that way and still snicker when somebody says, record sold. <laughs> <laughs> and there's Stevie grappling with that fame thing and always wanting to keep his authenticity, worried about that big road show that goes to the next big road show and forgetting why he ever picked up an axe to begin with. Vaughn was inspired musically by American and British blues rock. Here he talks about the difference between the British and American styles of playing. 
as I was hearing the original blues masters from the States, um, I was also hearing the English blues boom at the same time. So not only was I getting the original, but I was getting this uh, updated, energized version of the same thing. So I had less reservations and less reasons to be so-called a purist. And therefore, I wasn't as restricted about what I could learn. Show me how you combine the two, then. For instance, okay, Freddie King does Hideaway like... does it like this. Yeah, there's, there's a small difference there. And then it got down to the drugs. The guy had mastered his, his art, had taken it in places that very few had ever taken it. Stevie talks here about the time in his life when he realized that he had a problem with drugs and with alcohol. It was over a period of about 25 years that uh, in one form or another I was you know, drinking or using something. And uh, it got to the point where finally... I knew for I knew for quite a while that I could, that I had a problem with things like that with, with drugs and alcohol, but it was also at the same it was it was I knew that I had a problem, but I couldn't stop, and I knew that I couldn't stop. Every time that I had more pressure seemed to be a good excuse for more, and every time there was less pressure, it was party time. Those, that's the disease telling you that you don't have it, you know. Oh, sure, you can, come on, you can make it, you know. And uh, what happened was I ended up finally, I, kn I saw it coming too. I knew it was coming. Finally, I had a, every kind of breakdown at once that I think a person could have. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, and, and the whole ball of wax melted. Vaughn describes the moment he woke up paralyzed by fear. I woke up on a bus, uh, crying, scared of everything, didn't know why. Didn't know what I was scared of, much less how to deal with it. And that went on for quite some time until we were, it was just obvious that I could not keep going. And went and saw Dr. Victor Bloom in London. He put me in London Clinic, which is a private, private hospital. I did detox there. And we also checked out my stomach because I was having some struggle problems, possible ulcers, and it was just, come to find out, it was just, there was, he said my stomach looked like a 65-year-old man. And when we come back, Stevie Ray Vaughan finds sobriety, writes the greatest blues record, I think, ever written, recorded, and performed. And you'll hear a lot from that record here. Well, let's Stevie Ray's acts and his voice and his immense talent do the talking in the last segment. The life of Stevie Ray Vaughan, 
celebrated here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, the life of Stevie Ray Vaughan celebrated. And we're talking about Stevie Ray's bout with alcoholism and drug addiction and his path to sobriety. He tells us where he went next and how he was shown the way to sobriety. After I left that hospital, I was in London for three or four days, I guess, and came back to to the States, went and checked in immediately to a uh, Charter Peachford Hospital in Atlanta. I was there for about a month. And what that place did not only is a, is a good place to be away from the uh, away from drugs. You know, you do clean out that way. But it not only taught us, it not only got got us dried out all of the people that were in there and that have gone through them before, but it gives you, it teaches you a set of tools. Um, well, if you just dry up, you might as well just, you know, all you're doing then is white knuckling it and just, you know, on your own willpower, it's not going to work. You know, willpower has nothing to do with this. A lot of people think, why do I need to stop? It's not that easy. There is a, it's actually a disease. Alcoholism and addiction is a disease. And it, it's, it's a disease that tells, it's the only disease that I know of that, Part of it is that the disease actually tells you you don't have it. It's okay to it's okay to have one, and one is the one that gets you messed up. All the rest of them don't matter. And they don't. And here's Stevie Ray talking about his newfound sobriety, and he was asked if he performs better when sober. Uh, nowadays I'm I'm drug free, alcohol free. For a long time, no, I wasn't. About 25 years, and. Just trying to work through some of those problems and and grow from them, grow from those mistakes. The the this business, the scheduling of it, can call for can call for needed some people to see at least think that they need artificial energy, or not thinking about something to sedate themselves. Uh, a lot of that a lot of that comes with the image of rock and roll and and playing music. Um, 
regardless of all that, it still ends up where it's not necessary. It really isn't. Do you feel as though your music is better now than it was when you were under the influence? Yeah, there was, you know, of course, of course for a long time I thought that was the solution. You know, <laughs> I found that it was a problem. <laughs> you know, uh, I, th I think we're, our music's a lot clearer now. I really do. I feel a lot better inside, I know that. Double Trouble bassist Tommy Shannon remembers when he and Stevie Ray prayed together in a hotel room to overcome both of their addictions. I remember one night, I'll never forget this. This was about six months before we finally hit bottom. That's what we call it in the program of recovery. Uh, we both got down on our knees in this hotel room. We were praying, you know. Please, God, help us stop this, you know, because we, we knew we were in some deep trouble. We knew that, but we couldn't stop. And we said this real deep prayer. We got up, went over there, did some more cocaine, drank some more booze. But the thing is, the prayer was answered, you know. It came six months later. We both got clean and sober together, and it was like walking out of a cesspool out into the sunshine, you know, on a beautiful day. And out of that came Stevie Ray's greatest record, In Step. And again, I think many people consider it the finest blues rock record ever written. And then he embarked on a tour in which he opened for Joe Cocker. And I'll tell you a little bit about that tour later. But I saw him on July 7th, 1990, and he died just a month and a half later. And it really rocked everybody because to see a guy finally clean up after 25 years only to then have his life ended abruptly in a, in a helicopter crash. Well, the drummer for Double Trouble, Tommy Shaw, talks about the last words he had with Stevie Ray Vaughan before he died. The last night in Alpine Valley, the shows were over and everything was winding down. And he and I sat backstage like a half an hour it was a really nice time too because it was everything was really really relaxed it wasn't hectic like you know things that surround shows of that magnitude can be and um, we talked about families we talked about the next record that we were looking to make in the future and talked about all kinds of things it was real a really nice talk he said i, I gotta go um i said go where are you going he said well i'm I'm going to go back to Chicago. I said, well, why? He said, well, I'm going to go back and call. This is the girlfriend. He's going to go call the girlfriend. I said, well, I said, I got phones here. He said, he said well, I got to go. I said, well, um, I'll see you back in Chicago. He said, all right, because I love you. I said, I love you too. And he left, and that was the last time I saw him. It was, that was always strange to me. That he left. And then came this news on August 27, 1990. Take a listen. This is MTV News. I'm John Norris. Guitar great Stevie Ray Vaughan was killed early Monday morning in a helicopter crash at Alpine Valley in East Troy, Wisconsin. Vaughan, who would have turned 36 on October 3rd, was leaving the venue after a Sunday night concert there in which he'd shared the bill with Eric Clapton and Robert Cray. Vaughn's helicopter apparently lost its bearings in heavy fog and crashed into a man-made ski hill. Also killed in that crash, along with Vaughn and the helicopter pilot, were Bobby Brooks, a respected booking agent with the Contemporary Artists Agency, 
and two members of Eric Clapton's road crew, bodyguard Nigel Brown and tour manager Colin Smythe. Here's John Meyer, Meyer, who we started with, describing Vaughn as a hero for saving himself from drug and alcohol. This inspired Meyer to live his life sober. One of the traits that define a hero is courage. And Stevie had incredible courage because he fought to overcome the demons of drug and alcohol addiction. And when he did, he returned to the stage an even better guitar player for it. The only reason that I know exactly what sobriety meant to Stevie in his heart and soul is because he had the courage to talk openly about it on stage. And so because of Stevie, I grew up proudly turning down every drug and drink ever offered to me because in my mind, that could bring me closer to being like the man I never met and never could. Stevie was the ultimate guitar hero and heroes live forever. On behalf of every guitar player and every blues lover, it is the honor of a lifetime to induct Stevie Ray Vaughan and Double Trouble into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And so we're going to play a little of that record. And, uh, well, here's how it all starts. And this is from In Step, the first cut on this great record. Right after this, the album storms right into Crossfire. This is Our American Stories, the life of Stevie Ray Vaughan. I was lucky enough to catch him in a concert at the Garden State Arts Center, opening for Joe Cocker on July 7th, 1990. And for me, the shot, the show highlight was him slowing things down, talking a bit about his love of jazz and peace and quiet. And we're going to leave with Riviera Paradise. Again, the life of Stevie Ray Vaughan, celebrated here on Our American Stories. 
This is Our American Stories. The nightmare of modern terrorism in the Middle East took a shocking and radical turn in 1972. More than a thousand miles from the Holy Land, radical Palestinians, unable to achieve their goals through war or diplomacy, massacred 11 Israeli athletes at the Munich Olympics in Germany. The slaughter on innocence was carried out on the world stage with nearly a billion watching on television. What the world didn't see was the Israeli response. This is the story of the 1972 Munich Olympic Massacre and how Israel unleashed an elite team of intelligence agents dedicated to justice and revenge. Nearly every week on television and in newspapers, we witness a blood feud between Israelis and Palestinians that has gone on for decades. It was in the late 1960s when this cycle of violence began to escalate. After the small New Jersey-sized nation of Israel soundly defeated the Arab coalition in the 1967 Six-Day War, Palestinian terrorist groups turned to increasingly spectacular acts of evil to get world attention. Israel defended itself as it always had, but 1972 would be the turning point. On May 8th of that year, four members of a Palestinian terrorist group hijacked the Boeing 707 aircraft with 10 crew members and 90 passengers, 67 of them Jewish, and landed it in the heart of Israel, Tel Aviv. Soon after taking command, the two men and two women hijackers armed with hand grenades, a revolver, and two five-pound explosive devices separated the Jewish hostages from the others and sent them to the back of the aircraft. The captain relayed the terrorist demands that 315 convicted Palestinian terrorists be released from Israeli prisons or they would blow up the airplane with its passengers. Israel's policy was never to negotiate with terrorists or never to back down. Prime Minister Golda Meir ordered an assault on the aircraft. The mission was led by Israel's elite anti-terror unit, commanded by Ehud Barak, and joined by Benjamin Netanyahu. Both will become future prime ministers. Israeli commandos approached the aircraft, disguised as aircraft mechanics in white jumpsuits. They immediately kill the two male hijackers and apprehend the two females. Here's Ehud Barak on the incident. But it took just uh, 90 seconds uh, before we stormed it, killed two of the uh, uh, terrorists. Israelis interviewed the two captured female terrorists who admitted they were members of Black September, an amorphous branch of the terrorist organization Fatah. Founded by Yasser Arafat, Fatah is the most radical wing of the Palestine Liberation Organization, better known as the PLO. The man who ordered the hijacking was Arafat's protege and Fatah's commander, Ali Hassan Salame. Two weeks after the hijacking, Salame's name came up again in connection with a bloody massacre that left 24 dead, 78 wounded, at the same airport. Two of the three terrorists died, and the third was arrested. But Israel had not heard the last of Salame. 
or Black September. Here's Benjamin Netanyahu. After that, they realized they can't hijack Israeli planes. If they go to Israel with somebody else's plane and uh, try to extort something there, they'll be killed. So they figured they'd go somewhere else. Somewhere the whole world would be watching. The 1972 Munich Olympics. Israel. Munich's Olympic Games were carefully constructed to convey the message that Germany's rehabilitation was complete. That 1936, when Berlin under Adolf Hitler hosted the 11th Olympiad against the backdrop of discrimination and violence, was a relic of a dead past. Italian. The German organizers didn't want the world to see them holding guns, which might evoke old images. No armed guards or police were positioned in the Olympic Village or at stadium entrances. Security costs for the games came to $2 million. This relatively insignificant sum was not born of miserliness, but of a frank desire to keep security to a minimum. In contrast, the 2004 Olympic security costs exceeded $1 billion. Germany, Cologne Airport, Wednesday, August 23rd, 1972. A middle-aged couple wait for their four pieces of luggage to arrive. The man, dressed in a well-tailored suit, hoists the bags onto two carts and heads towards the customs line and the exit beyond. The Palestinian man is a courier for Fatah and its black September wing in Europe. His accomplice, posing as his wife, is there to lend legitimacy to their cover. The couple are asked to open their bags. The husband refuses. He begins to yell and scream, I am a businessman, not a criminal. The customs officials have seen this act before. They point to a bag and ask him to open it. The man reluctantly opens the suitcase. Lingerie, in many colors and styles, covers the inspection desk. The officer motions to the man, close your case and carry on. What the German officer doesn't know is that the three pieces of luggage he failed to inspect contains eight AK-47s, dozens of magazines loaded with 7.62 millimeter bullets and 10 hand grenades. The operation is on track. With 13 days to go before the attack, the terrorists have time to kill. They choose nicknames for themselves. One member of Black September calls himself Che Guevara as a tribute to his hero the bloodthirsty Cuban communist sidekick of Fidel Castro. The rest of the eight Palestinians take in the sights, make dinner plans, and catch up on sleep. One even goes to two Olympic volleyball games. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story here on Our American Stories, the massacre at the Munich Olympics. This is Our American Stories, and we continue now 
with a heck of a story. And by the way, you're wondering, well, there's nothing American about this story. But as you know, the special relationship this country has with England, with Israel, with Australia, makes them American stories, too. And our experience with terrorism, the radical Islamic variety, makes us very close cousins to Israel. And now let's pick up where the story left off the 1972 Munich Olympic Massacre. Tuesday, September 5th, 1972. Day 10 of the Olympics. A bus filled with the sounds of backslapping and laughter arrives back at the Olympic Village. The jubilant Israeli athletes just spent an evening at the theater. At 4.30 a.m. on September 5th, as the athletes sleep, eight tracksuit-clad members of Black September carry duffel bags loaded with AK-47 automatic rifles, semi-automatic pistols, and hand grenades. Where are you guys from? As they are about to scale the six-foot barrier into the Olympic Village, they're immediately spotted. I don't speak English, man. A few tipsy American athletes sneaking back into the village after a night on the town help them over. quickly assist them in getting over the chain-link fence. Here you go. Let's go. I got you. Come on. The terrorists encountered no guards, but to the sober eyes of six German postal workers, the men seem suspicious. They report the break-in, but no action is taken. Once inside, the Black September members change their clothes and load their weapons. With a stolen key, they attempt to enter the apartment housing the Israeli delegation. But the lock won't turn. The jiggling of the key immediately wakes Yusuf Gutfreund, a six foot three, 285 pound international wrestling referee. The terrorists flip the lock and open the door. But Gutfreund stands in the hall, staring at the masked men, as he throws the full weight of his body and strength against the door. One of the terrorists quickly wedges the steel barrel of his AK-47 between the door and the frame, and begins using it as a crowbar. The weightlifting coach, a Holocaust survivor who lost his entire family on German soil, hears the commotion and sees the masked terrorist slowly gaining entrance. He yells to his flatmates to run for their lives as he throws himself out the back window and escapes. The terrorists overpower Gutfreund and charge into the room. Wrestling coach Moshe Weinberg is shot through the cheek while trying to fight off the intruders. A 106-pound Israeli wrestler slaps at one of the terrorist barrels and runs down to the underground parking garage as one of the terrorists follows him, spraying gunfire in his direction. He also escapes. Then, the wounded Weinberg, holding a rag on his bullet-holed cheek, makes another attack, knocking one of the intruders unconscious and slashing another with a fruit knife before being shot to death. Weightlifter Yusuf Romano, a veteran of the Six-Day War, also attacks and wounds one of the terrorists before being shot and killed. That September morning in 1972, the people of Munich wake to the sound of sirens and the rumble of military trucks. Flickering police lights paint the city blue at dawn. The news is breaking all over the world. The peace of what is what have been called the Serene Olympics was shattered just before dawn this morning, about five o'clock. 
Here's Peter Jennings with the live broadcast. If I were to guess at the moment at which of the commando organizations this group is to come from, I'd be most likely to narrow in on a group called Black September. I was a reporter based in Lebanon, and if you were an American reporter working for an American news agency in Beirut, you knew all the characters because the Palestinians were very open about many of the things they were trying to accomplish, and so we knew some of the players. Didn't always know what they were doing, and God knows what they were going to do. And they've taken nine members of the Israeli delegation hostage. It now appears that Black September has tossed a piece of paper out the window, a list of demands. A man with a stocking mask on his face. Weird. What's going on inside that head and that mind? The terrorists demanded the release of 234 prisoners who were being held in Israeli jails and also some who were being held abroad. Um, but Golda Meir would have, would have none of it. She just rejected their demands outright. Instead, Israeli Prime Minister Golda Meir sends two officials to Germany, one of them the head of Israeli's intelligence and special operations organization, the Mossad. His name, General Zvi Zamir. He intends to help the Germans deal with the volatile situation. Here's General Zamir. We were the first to suffer from terrorism, and as a result of that, we were the first to train uh, units to deal with terrorism, you see. Although Germany has no anti-terrorism units, they politely refuse Golda Meir's offer. Instead, local German government officials handle the crisis, which is to say, the incompetence level during the hostage crisis will be absolute. By 5 p.m., the Palestinians demand an airplane to take them and their hostages to an unspecified Arab country. The Germans agree, counting on ambushing the terrorists at the airfield. German authorities transport the terrorists and their hostages to Furstenfeldbruck Airport. Heading to an airport called Furstenfeldbruck. In his book, Stateless, the commander of Fatah shared why he chose the Munich Games as his target. To use the unprecedented number of media outlets in one city to display the Palestinian struggle, for better or worse. Around the world, viewers hunkered in front of their TVs, watching and waiting for the outcome. The latest word we get from the airport is that, quote, all hell is broken loose out there. At the airport, a novice German police force set up a decoy airplane to lure the terrorists into the line of their sniper fire. But as the terrorists board the plane, the pilots and the crew are gone. This is ridiculous. Little do they know that just 15 minutes prior, a group of 13 German officers from the police special task command force abandoned the plane and their mission for fear of their lives. He's right. We can't do any good here. They took a last-minute vote. It was unanimous, and their commander supported their decision wholeheartedly. With an empty plane, the terrorists immediately assume it's a trap. And uh, it all went horribly wrong. It degenerated into a battle, uh, and the hostages were in the middle of this. They were manacled and shackled in the, in the back of the helicopters. And all this time, the two Israelis who come over to try and help the rescue operation were standing there watching this and impotent really, they were, they were powerless to, to do anything um, because the battle had begun. German snipers eliminate five of the eight terrorists in the chaotic gunfight. Oh my God. But before their deaths, the members of Black September 
murder all nine of the chained Israeli hostages. The three surviving terrorists are held in police custody. Rumors rage. The media pounce. We have reports now that all the hostages, all nine hostages, are safe. The international news agency Reuters sends out an exclusive wire report. It reads, all Israeli hostages have been freed. And according to these reports, all Arab terrorists have died by German gunfire. The good news spreads like wildfire and the world celebrates. In Israel, relatives and friends show up at athletes' family homes with flowers and champagne. Then, just after three in the morning, the truth finally reaches the media when Reuters sends a corrected message over the wires. Flash, all Israeli hostages seized by Arab guerrillas killed. ABC's Jim McKay broadcasts the devastating update to the world. He looks straight into the camera and says, We've just gotten the final word. You know, when I was a kid, my father used to say, our greatest hopes and our worst fears are seldom realized. Our worst fears have been realized tonight. They have now said that there were 11 hostages. Two were killed in their rooms this mo yesterday morning. Nine were killed at the airport tonight. They're all gone. They're all gone. The bomber exploded on Jews have been led yet again to their death on German soil. Only 27 years passed since 6 million Jews were herded into camps and murdered. As the relatives of the Munich victims gather to bury their dead, Israeli security officials plot revenge. I think it was a great shock. It was a great shock because it showed you what kind of uh, lack of uh, inhibition lack of any moral constraints uh, this terror had. It was, if it was supposed to break our morale, it didn't. And that was Benjamin Netanyahu still fighting the same fight today as the Prime Minister. The civilized world fighting the same fight against radical Muslims, radical Islamists. More on the 1972 Munich Olympic Massacre after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the Olympic massacre in the 1972 Munich Olympic Games and Israel's response to this horror. In Jerusalem, Prime Minister Golda Meir tells Parliament that Israelis will go after the terrorists responsible. We will smite them wherever they may be. First, Golda's airstrike response looks like previous skirmishes, but this is just the beginning. Golda wants to set a new standard. She realizes Israel can no longer afford to respond and retaliate. The Talmudic imperative to rise and slay the one who comes to kill you needs to be fulfilled to the letter of the law, she says. Prime Minister Mayer authorizes the assassination campaign. 
They call it Operation Wrath of God. Terror will soon arrive at the terrorist doorstep. Initially, it was the intention of the hijackers. If Operation Wrath of God has any lingering doubts, they are erased by events on October 29, 1972, just a month and a half after Munich. Lufthansa jet was hijacked coming from Damascus. The hijackers demanded the release of the three killers who survived Munich, and the Germans said yes instantly. The three terrorists celebrate their freedom with a press conference. Look at them. The movie stars. Did you shoot any of the Israeli hostages? Uh, it's, not, it's not important to, to say I, kill, uh, I killed Israel. It is clear that if those who planned and carried out the attack at Munich were ever going to pay for what they did, only Israel could extract that payment. Operation Wrath of God would be the instrument of its revenge. That was the first time, I think, in the history of Israel, and maybe in the history of the world, that a state decided to pursue a policy of personal killing uh, in a systematic way. Golda lights a Chesterfield. 11-8. Give us the order and we begin. A committee led by Mayer draft a secret hit list of Black September members. Ambushed and slaughtered again. While the rest of the world is playing games, Olympic torches and brass bands and dead Jews in Germany. And the world couldn't care less. We've responded. We sent 70 fighters. Response no on her. Airstrikes on guerrilla training centers. That's a response. The Israeli intelligence agency Mossad supplies the committee with dossiers on the Palestinian members. Number one on the list was Ali Hassan Salame. Let me remind you, Ali Hassan Salame, he invented Black September. He is the architect of the Munich murders. There's people. They're sworn to destroy us. Because I don't know who these maniacs are and where they come from. Palestinians. They're not recognizable. You tell me what law protects people like these. Today I'm hearing with new ears. I've made a decision. The responsibility is entirely mine. Salame is the operations chief of Black September and the mastermind behind Munich and the Palestinian hijackings. For all his bloody activities, the Israeli media crown him the Red Prince. He was really um, a protege of Yasser Arafat. Yasser Arafat publicly declared him to be his son, in inverted commas. And um, he was really uh, something of an aristocratic hero within the Palestinian, among the Palestinian people. Operation Wrath of God is underway as Mossad agents fan out across Europe and the Middle East. The first target on Mossad's secret assassination list is a black September operative working as a translator at the Libyan embassy in Rome. He had no idea the Israelis were coming for him. He uh, ate dinner that night with a friend um, and walked home to his apartment block. He stopped off to buy some groceries, uh, made a couple of phone calls and then walked into the, the entrance hall where he lived when two Israeli agents emerged from shadows and shot him with um, small caliber pistols. Over the next six months, 
Mossad agents hunt down and kill three other Palestinian terrorists hiding in Europe. They came up with quite intricate, um, sophisticated ways of killing people, uh, including uh, bombs that were detonated uh, by telephone calls. Um, they put landmines under car and under somebody's car seat. Uh, they blew people up in their ho hotel bed. Here's Bassem Abu Sharif, Yasser Arafat's chief advisor. The uh, PLO at that time uh, urged all who have relationship to the PLO and their officers to be on the alert because they're expecting that Israel would carry such uh, terrorist operations. By the spring of 1973, Israel cooks up a mission that will strike fear into the heart of Black September and the PLO. Beirut, a one million person coastal city 75 miles north of Israel's border. Beirut is a notorious factory for terrorism. At the time, of course, Beirut wasn't like uh, Europe. It was an armed uh, city where they would have been quite prepared to um, attack and kill any, Israelis, uh, any Israeli soldiers that they saw. But these Israeli agents will not be seen. For this operation, Mossad will enlist Israel's elite special force, known simply as the unit. Lieutenant Colonel Ehud Barak is in charge. We felt very self-confident that we can do whatever we need to, to do. There's the scalpel and there's the sledgehammer. The sledgehammers, the screws missiles, and the Air Force coming in and laying down carpet of bombs. The, the, the unit is a scalpel. And this operation is most definitely a surgical strike. Mossad learns that three top-level Fatah targets live in the same apartment block on the Rue Verdun just beyond the American and British embassies and the luxury seaside hotels. They were the planners, they were the military um, commanders, and they were very, very close to Yasser Arafat. It's Israel's most audacious counter-terrorism mission to date. The intended message, our reach is long. We can find you anywhere. The motive, deterrence, prevention, revenge. Here's how it goes down. Ehud Barak turned up at the, uh, uh, the commando's base and slapped down on the table the three photographs of the individuals they were going to target. And uh, people who were there have said this murmur of anticipation ran through the room. I told him, these are the guys. They try to photograph their faces. We are going to uh, go and find them. As they trained to go and find them, they realized that a group of young Israeli men moving through the streets of Beirut might easily blow up their operation. So they decide to disguise themselves as couples on a date. The shortest warriors dress in drag. Barak is the hot brunette. A future Israeli general and deputy head of the Mossad are the blondes. The men hide their weapons and explosives under their jackets. The ladies stash Uzi submachine guns in their fashionable purses and hide hand grenades under their braziers. The idea is show the people something very unthreatening, they won't even notice it, and you can walk right by even a police officer, as they did in this case. And when we come back, the final installment in this riveting story, the Israeli response to the massacre in Munich. They weren't just looking for justice, they were looking for revenge.
This is Our American Stories, the final segment in our hour-long recollection. Look back at the Israeli response to the massacre in Munich, the massacre at the 1972 Olympic Games. Let's listen to the final chapter. On April 9, 1973, Israeli naval missile boats depart from Haifa Naval Base carrying the unit's top 16 commandos and rubber Zodiac speedboats. The ladies cover their heads with plastic ponchos to protect their wigs and makeup-covered faces from the sea spray. When the missile boats reach the shores of Beirut, the inflatable Zodiacs are lowered into the water. To avoid being heard, they cut the engine several hundred yards from the shore and begin to paddle. A lot of manpower. Shoot three guys. They were met by waiting cars with Mossad agents behind the wheel. And then they drove them through Beirut, through the city, through traffic. The agents from the Mossad had found out where they lived and had even gotten blueprints of the houses, the apartment, the apartments where they were living, right outside of Beirut. A broad-shouldered man in a suit two sizes too big for him walks hand-in-hand with Barack the brunette towards the entrance of their target. The other couples follow along while staying in character. The unit meets strong resistance early on from nearly 100 militants guarding the apartments. They engage in a close quarters battle. The doorman runs into the apartment and cries out in a garbled voice, the Jews are here. Within minutes, three of the PLO's highest level leaders are dead. The soldiers shove piles of paper into waterproof bags and race down the stairs. As the unit exits into the street, they run into a firefight with Lebanese police, who are quickly beaten back. Mossad agents drive the commandos back to the beach, abandon their rented Buick Skylarks, and return to the missile boats in their rubber Zodiacs. It took us the whole operation from the time we landed to the time we were back in the sea some 30 minutes. By the time the sun rises over Beirut, Barack and his men are back in Israel. The Israelis assassinated three Palestinian leaders who all lived in this one apartment building. Altogether, they killed or injured as many as 40 Lebanese and Palestinians. I remember the town was in shock when they invaded Beirut itself. And in the dead of night, just stitch these guys in their apartments. The sense of vulnerability was enormous. In Lebanon, the government collapses in the aftermath of the attack. Arab newspapers publish eyewitness accounts of two beautiful women, one a blonde, one a brunette, fighting terrorists in the streets of Beirut, keeping police, army, and Palestinian operatives at bay with long bursts of automatic gunfire. Stories abound, myths grow. Yet the most important target, and most elusive, is still at large. The Israelis were so keen to assassinate Ali Hassan Salameh that they um, uh, searched all over Europe for him. They weren't sure where he was uh, based or, or, or even really sure what he looked like at the time. He was very cautious and careful and moved from one place to, to another, never, never stayed at the same place. He was a very, very difficult target. Mossad agents pick up traces of salame throughout Europe. But the leads run cold. Then, 
On July 14, 1973, Mossad gets a tip that a low-level courier has a scheduled rendezvous with the Red Prince. Fourteen Israeli agents follow the courier to a tiny town in Norway called Lillehammer. For two days, they do not let the Red Prince out of their sight. There is, however, a junior member of the Israeli team who has her doubts about whether this is actually Salame, but she is overruled. On the night of July 21st, as Salame walks with a woman up a deserted street, two Mossad agents jump out of their car, withdraw their silenced Berettas, and shoot the man ten times at close range. The woman screams as the mastermind of Munich falls to the ground. But junior backup agents make a fatal error. As they speed out of the sleepy Norwegian town, a lone Lillehammer police officer takes down their license plate number. The morning after, they drive the same car to the Oslo airport and are arrested. One of the agents who has serious claustrophobia spills the beans on the operation and discloses the locations of many Israeli safe houses across Europe. It is an international embarrassment for Israel. As bad as this is, the team makes a bigger mistake. The man they killed is not Ali Hassan Salame. Here's former CIA officer Sam Wyman. When you have a team that is that expert and that skilled and that well-trained, when there is disagreement from one of those expert, well-trained people, history has shown us you ought to listen. Five of the six Israeli agents serve a maximum sentence of 20 months, a slap on the wrist. To many, this is evidence that European governments quietly condone the actions of the Israeli hit teams. But back in Israel, one of Golda Meir's worst nightmares has come true. The murder in Lilyhammer was seen as such a disaster um, for Israeli intelligence that Golda Meir and the Israeli uh, government decided to suspend um, Operation Wrath of God and put a, hold, uh, put a hold on on future assassination operations. Mossad hit teams lie dormant for five years. During this time, in 1974, Golda authorizes a hit on PLO leader Yasser Arafat. But low visibility prevents aerial reconnaissance from confirming Arafat's location. The mission is aborted. That same year, Arafat is given a hero's welcome at the United Nations, just two years after the Munich massacre. Standing right behind him and sharing in the spotlight is Arafat's close friend, the architect of Munich, Ali Hassan Salame. In 1978, five years after Operation Wrath of God was suspended, Mossad is given a green light once more and zero in on Salame, who is working at PLO headquarters in Beirut. He had uh, lowered his guard. He was following a pretty regular daily routine. Uh, the, the Israeli agents soon realized from surveillance uh, where he was living and where he would work and people he would visit. January 1979. Salame leaves his home in the afternoon and gets into his tan Chevrolet, accompanied by two bodyguards. Two more bodyguards climb into the Land Rover and follow behind. The Chevy rolls towards a rented Volkswagen Bug that is packed with 11 pounds of plastic explosives, equal to 70 pounds of dynamite. A Mossad agent stands 100 yards away 
on the balcony of her rented apartment and watches the convoy approach. She flips the switch on the detonator as the Chevrolet rolls past. As the smoke clears, the car lays obliterated in the middle of the street. Inside, 38-year-old Ale Hassan Salame is dead. Well, Salame was seen as, as almost a, a, an aristocrat within the Palestinian community. He was, he was uh, revered by many people, idolized by many others. Um, and his death came as a huge shock to, um, uh, to Palestinians. He had a huge funeral. Yasser Arafat shed tears and uh, hugged uh, Ali Hassan Salame's young son um, and really uh, uh, was visibly moved and deeply upset by, by the attack. The Israelis, by contrast, of course, were completely delighted um, about his death. It is seven years in the making, but Israel feels they finally avenged Munich and made their country and the world a safer place. Two of the three terrorists who survived Munich were also reported killed in the late 70s. There's only one surviving terrorist who was involved in the actual attack at Munich. That's a, a man called Jamal al-Kashi, um, who still lives in hiding now. Um, he still lives in fear of his life and thinks the Israelis may try to assassinate him. In 1999, a Hollywood film crew accomplished something that even the Mossad was unable to do. They locate Jamal al-Gashi and convince him to sit down for an interview for their Oscar-winning documentary, One Day in September, narrated by Michael Douglas. The almost fully silhouetted Palestinian reflects on the massacre of 11 innocent Israeli athletes 27 years after their deaths. I felt great pride and happiness that I would be participating in an operation against the Israelis. I was finally going to fulfill my dream. Today, he is reportedly hiding somewhere in Africa. This is Our American Stories. Great job on that, Greg, as always on these pieces. And for anybody listening and understanding that things haven't changed in all these years. And in some ways, they may actually be worse. There's no talk right now of a two-state solution. We have Hamas inside the West Bank with a covenant that urges the destruction of Israel and swears by the destruction of Israel. And of course, the response from the Israelis, the only response possible, hunt them down, kill them to the end. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Operation Wrath of God. The Olympic Massacre in Munich in 1972. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to listen to stories like this and more.